This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. winning author of kick-ass international thrillers and this is the taylor Stephen show with my good friend steve campbell where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time and for listeners out there you know that i have been promising a story from the farm week after week after week and not delivering last week taylor promised a story from the farm so taylor are we delivering today yes <laughs> I just try, I'm like sitting here racking my brain going, okay, what kind of nonsense can I, that we've been up to that I can talk about? So this first, I've got two quick little stories. One has to do with the goose. Um, the goose? Yes, the goose. I'm not going to That you still have it named? Well, okay. The naming of the goose is probably a story in itself. So I don't know if the goose is a boy or a girl. I think it's a boy. But, um... I'm not going to go into the sad details of why he's the only goose, but let's just say that he is the only goose now. And um, he is very, uh, before he was the only goose, he didn't really care much about me. I, yeah, okay, fine, I was the mom, whatever, but he was more interested in the other geese. When he was the only one, oh my God, he was so sad for the longest time, and he followed me everywhere like a dog. And just like everywhere. I came in the house. He wanted to come in the house. I walked around the corner of the house. He was right there beside me. Um, and I'm often out there at night, and they don't see very well in the dark. And so, you know, I have a flashlight, and he's, like, in the light of the flashlight. And sometimes running up ahead to, like, stay in front of me so that I, I can't go where he can't see me. And he's constantly calling to me. And so um, I, I would call back to him, and <laughs> I ended up calling him Francis because... It reminded me so much of the scenario in Deadpool, where Deadpool was constantly showing that cartoon drawing. Uh, Have you seen this? This is Francis. Francis, where are you, Francis? Francis! And that was me with the goose constantly. Francis! Francis! (laughs) Because he'd be screaming, wondering where I was, and I'm, Francis! Where's Francis? So yeah, that's his name, is Francis. Um, But anyway... Uh, gradually he adjusted to being the only one. And since he wasn't allowed to be in the house all the time, like I let him sleep in the house for the first week until I figured out a way to keep him safe at night. And then he decided he wasn't going to be safe at night anymore. So, um, now that he's out there, he's, he's adjusted to not being a person and he thinks he's a dog. (laughs) And I'm really happy with him thinking he's a dog because as long as he sleeps with the dogs at night, then there's a really good chance he'll stay alive because as long as they know where he is, they'll keep him safe. But what's the funny story, and this is the one that I was getting ready to tell, is there are coyotes, packs of coyotes in the area, um, which is why we have dogs to begin with. And when the coyotes get to yipping and howling, the dogs howl too. And that's funny. That's funny on its own. But where it's really funny is when the goose starts howling. (laughs) Now, granted, he can't howl, howl, but he sure as heck tries. And so the coyotes will get to yipping and howling, and then the dog will start howling, and then the goose will start squawking, and it's like this complete ruckus 
outside at three o'clock in the morning where everybody's got something to say. That's my funny farm story. It's the goose who thinks he's a dog and howls at coyotes. <laughs> well, you've even titled it. That is fantastic. <laughs> and so I have one other small little one that I'll just throw out there for, for I don't know, fun. So anyway, um, another chicken um, hatched a, a clutch of eggs. Uh, kind of snuck off and did it. And this is a bantam. She's very, very small. Bantam chicks are adorable and they're absolutely worthless. Um, so I guess you could say she's a pet, but I'm not a fan. <laughs> so she's not a loved pet. <laughs> None of the bantams are beloved pets. They're just chickens who tear up all my flower beds. So, um, but she hatched these chicks and, you know, it's not the chick's fault that they're bantams. And she did what I've noticed most of the mama hens will do is when their chicks get to be about three or four weeks old, she's just done. And she goes up and she roosts in a tree and just lets her babies fend for her themselves at night, which would be fine if she was in um, the hen house, but she's not. She roosts in a tree in the backyard. So the first night that she did that, I was like, well, fine, but where are the babies? So I went and looked in the spot where she'd been hiding with them. And there's this little three of them all huddled together, which was fine because, you know, it's warm. And I'm like, I don't know how long they're going to last. I mean, the backyard's a little safer than out in the middle of a field. But still, you know, it's not predator proof or anything. Um, but the, the temperature is changing. And so I was like, well, you know, they're still really young and they're not big enough to survive on their own at night. I mean, every day that they're still alive, I'm kind of shocked. And I'm like, well, I'm not setting up a brooder for three little chicks. I'm, is not, they're not mine. I'm not taking care of them. So last night I went and I looked at her up in the tree and I looked, her babies are down in that spot. And I was just like, nah. And I went and I grabbed her and I pulled her out of the tree and I went and I stuck her on top of them. <laughs> I was like, you keep your babies warm. That's your job, not my job. And I waited there for a second. She's like, oh, oh, my babies. Oh, where have you been? And she went and settled down on top of them. So I guess now part of my evening routine is going to be pulling a chicken out of the tree and sitting on top of her babies. <laughs> That's my story. Oh, gosh. We need some sort of a drone flying around your place so that we can actually watch this stuff. <laughs> Sometimes, every once in a while, I'll post a picture of things and put it in the Facebook page. Like I posted a, I posted a pop quiz and I was like, 100 points. Oh points don't mean anything but 100 points to anybody who can tell me what a frizzle is without looking and you know of course did anyone claim like, the prize uh, no i mean people had fun ideas but none of them were, were well i think one person knew and they didn't spoil it and they just said hey i'm looking forward to seeing the pictures that you post and then once some answers started coming in like that evening i went and posted a picture of what a frizzle was so and i explained it also not just the picture the details behind it so sometimes i'll do that like on the facebook page but you know it's hard to actually catch all of this stuff in in visual i'm just wondering what that person is going to do with the hundred points <laughs> they don't mean anything <laughs> <laughs> today's topic is we're talking about words and today's topic is overused words and writing ticks yes yes it is um, but before we go there, uh, in last week's episode, I talked about how I wanted to also discuss uh, times when you don't want to be specific. Like last show was about vagueness. And I was like, there's times where 
um, generalities are actually good and it doesn't violate the no vagueness rules. And I was talking about discrete numbers. And in this, uh, this topic, I'm actually pulling from some notes that I gave to Steve when I was working on um, his manuscript with him. Um, so I'm, I'm actually just really straight up cribbing from those notes. So um, if it seems like out of context or whatever it is, it, because <laughs> I, I, I didn't write this specifically, these notes specifically for the show, but I felt that the information that I had given to him would be really beneficial for you as leader, readers to know about. So I'm just basically going off those notes. Or to listeners. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. My brain is fried. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> okay. So I'm talking to Steve when I say this, right? There are many, many instances throughout the story where we're given discrete numbers. I arrived at 4.30. I took two steps to the door. And in most instances, it's not clear through text alone why these numbers matter. So my advice is to make working in generalities your default and to only add discrete numbers when doing so will strengthen the plot or character or narrative. And there are two main reasons for this advice. The first one is, anytime we provide a specific detail, the brain expects it to have meaning. And so it sort of holds it in working memory, kind of like how RAM works on a computer, sort of a temporary placeholder waiting for when it's going to be needed. So when this type of detail, this specific detail is used for no specific purpose, just as part of the narrative, it becomes grit. It's just sitting there in this memory waiting to be used, taking up space, and the brain can't release that space and free it up for something else as long as it's clogging that up. And it, and, and it keeps expecting something to matter, and it never does. And then the brain gets frustrated. Number two is the screen numbers are difficult for the mental movie to convert into visual images. And so the brain either skips over them to keep the mental movie going, or it has to pause the mental movie to try and figure out how to convert those numbers into something meaningful. So when I tell you I arrived at his office right before the close of workday, unless the reader has never left the house, never watched TV or spent their entire life in a remote area without access to modern life, that mental movie already has immediate access to an existing array of visuals, uh, sort of an innate universal understanding of right before the close of work that day is going to look and feel like to them, right? And so that detail enters the mental movie seamlessly without a hitch. But when I say I arrived at 4.30, the immediate visual clue is a clock or a watch and a sense of trying to put meaning to that detail when there isn't any. So for the sake of keeping that mental movie going forward without a hitch, you remove the detail and you provide a visual, something that actually has... Um, a real life connection or component to it that's easily translated, translatable that converts words into pictures. So there's exceptions to this, of course. And that would be if the numbers actually matter. So if someone says in the story, someone says they're going to be somewhere at 10 o'clock, like they have an appointment, and the character is trying to get there in time to make that appointment, well, that matters. All of a sudden, 10 o'clock has meaning. 
And so you can focus on that discrete number because it matters to the story. It's not just throwing it out there as part of the narrative. If the number of steps a character has to take to get to the door will come into play later in the story, like when they're fighting their way out of a burning building or something, then yeah, that matters. But saying I took three quick steps in her direction doesn't actually tell us anything more than I moved in her direction or I hurried to close the space between us or I quickened my pace to keep up. So the goal is to keep the reading brain moving forward and trying to avoid getting it hung up on unnecessary details and hitches. And when we provide discrete numbers to things that don't matter or we do it when it's not necessary, that's going to cause exactly what you're trying to avoid. So that is my little explanation on why we avoid discrete numbers. Discrete is like specific number that is quantifiable um, when, when you can just use something general and more visual in its place. All right. So would you say that the use of discrete numbers is a writing tick of mine? <laughs> well, you do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, is that a yes? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> so, um, in the vein of writing ticks, um, one of the things that I noticed when I was working on uh, Steve's manuscript is certain words that he used a lot or that felt overused. And Every single writer has these. Every, all of us do. I do. Everybody does. And the goal in writing is what, what makes the reading experience um, immersive, well, one of the many things, is when you are creating cadence, like a rhythm, a cadence through variety, you, you, you vary the length of your sentences, you vary the length of uh, you vary the, the words that you use in the sentences. You try not to repeat the same words over and over. Anything that gets rep repetitive in the writing is going to feel very much like a metronome bump, bump, bump in reading, and that's not fluid. There's, it's just, it, it becomes like a wheel just going ka-kunk, and it's very, it's interruptive, right? So, um, I, I know I have a list somewhere on my computer and eventually I'll pull it out of what I call my, um, my final read. So like after I've like finished all my passes and I've gotten the, the story pretty much where I want it to go uh, in terms of writing, I'll start going down this checklist and just do hunt and search, hunt and search for things that I know are my own personal writing ticks and things that, uh, that are really easy to miss, uh, filler words that are really easy to miss. Uh, as part of the writing, but which can mostly be deleted afterwards. And it's just much easier to go through and delete them after and clean them up than it is to deal with it while you're, it interrupts the writing flow while you're in the, in that zone. So how many words, I, I, how many words is, are on your list? I'm curious. Uh, I don't even remember anymore. And it's, it's not even a list so much as like the one that we're going to go through now. Like the one that we're going through now are things that I've learned to just be conscious of as I go. But on my list are things like, you know, that were, that are, um, he was, things like that, that um, in, in most cases are just redundant. They're filler words. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I'd have to actually go look at the list again to see what it was. One of the ones I know is, you know, the fact that can often be replaced in order to, of the, 
and and you'd just be shocked at how cumulatively how many words these combinations add to a manuscript when you don't even need them. So anyway, um, one thing that doing this project with Steve allowed me to do is actually explain the reasoning behind or replacements for some of these overused words, which I've never done before. It's just stuff that I've known myself. So I figured I'd take advantage of the opportunity to, um, to just go through some of them here because these some of them are, are ones that I've had to also uh, eliminate or minimize in my own writing. Uh, so I know they're not, it's not, these are pretty, some of these are pretty universal. So anyway, okay, so the first one is smile. And this was one of my biggest ticks earlier on. I'm really sensitive to it now. And one of the main issues with using smile to denote human expression is we really only have this one word for an enormous range of emotion. So there are so many different types of smiles. They can mean so many things. You know, you can, you, you, they can indicate knowing uh, they can in indicate rejection, they can indicate acceptance, they can indicate um, happiness, they can indicate uh, unhappy. There's just so much depending on which way the, the mouth works, right? But we only have the one word, which is smile, right? So in your head, when you're writing it and you use this word smile, you see exactly what type of smile is going on. But the reader pretty much only gets the one and it's like this big grin or, you know, this teethy smile, right? And that kind of smile is really rare. And like, we don't see that as the way that we normally think of the word smile when we're trying to show somebody's facial expressions. The word smile, when you put it on the page, almost never comes close to what the reader's going to see when they read it. So for that, you have to be careful. Like a character like Monroe should not be doing a lot of smiling, but she sure certainly did once upon a time. <laughs> so what I've found is that if you hunt for the word smile and you read the sentence in isolation outside of the rest of the story, six times out of 10, you can just delete it, just straight off delete it. And the whole thing's going to read fine without having anything there. And of the other four tens, the other four instances of it, maybe one actually is going to deserve that word smile as it is. And two might deserve some kind of modification, like a wan smile or a suspicious smile or whatever, humorless smile, knowing smile. And then one could probably be replaced with another body movement or a facial expression altogether. And, you know, your mileage may vary. I'm just, that's been my experience. There's another word that is so overused is nodded. And this is very similar to smile because we have this small head movement that stands in for words and there's so much nuance to how we use that small head movement and we only get one word to describe it, which is nod. Same as with smile, right? I've learned also similarly that hunting them down and reading them in isolation a whole lot of them can just be deleted without costing you anything. And you know, you put them there when you're writing because that's what you're, it's what you're visualizing. Just put them in, don't worry about it. This is a hunt and replace afterwards, right? So you can delete it without costing anything. And a lot of the others can be replaced by substituting with other forms of body language. 
And some of those can be silent acknowledgement or agreement. And sometimes it's not even necessary to have anything at all. So the goal isn't to eliminate head nodding completely. It's to avoid relying on the same limited body movements and the same limited description of those body movements. You're looking for variety. You're looking for some other way to communicate the subtle communication between people that doesn't always use words. And one way to sort of help yourself with this challenge is to create a rule in which you only allow yourself to use the word nodded in an instance when there's no dialogue to go with it. In other words, the nodding is the dialogue. Or when nodding is like a pointer, drawing attention from one place to the next, like he nodded his head towards the door. And that is standing in for words. And then trying to eliminate the instances where nodded is simply a head motion before the person talks. And the, the purpose of this rule is so that when you violate it, you get to have a good debate with yourself about why it's necessary in that instance and why it's okay to violate the rule. And by doing that, you're going to just automatically cut down how often you're using the word, and it's going to force you to be really conscious about what you're actually trying to say and, and to seek out other possibilities and then only use it when you can't get away from it. Another that we get a lot is like shook his head, shook her head, and everything with nodded applies to this as well. But taking it a step further, anytime we say like he shook his head no, well, the no is redundant and it needs to be deleted. That's just kind of a thing. So shook his head, if you use it, use it. Shook his head no, we already know what shaking his head means unless he's trying to get, you know, shook the water off his hair or something, you know. Um, the same same applies to the word shrugged. So also you don't need to ever put he shrugged his shoulders. There's only one thing in your body that you shrug and it's your shoulders so that his shoulders or the shoulders part is completely redundant. Shrugged is all there is to it. So then another word that often gets overused is the word breath because we we use, a lot of writers use the sort of the concept of holding breath, taking a deep breath to, um, to substitute for telling how a character is feeling. You know, you can say you're showing it basically instead of telling it. And so what concerns me with using the word breath is when the repetitions of like deep breath, deep breath, slow breaths are the only way that we're describing that range of body language, that range of inner world emotions. So when there's no variety in how that's expressed, then it can feel really repetitive. It can feel copy and paste. So if 
I feel there's a lot of breathing or breath in my manuscript. I'm going to do a search for inhale to see if I'm finding other ways to describe the same thing. I'm going to do a search for alternate phrases like drew in or pulled in, something that might imply or denote a similar experience. And I know my own writing. So those are words that I would look for. You might never even think to use a word like that. So don't even bother searching for it. Search for what you yourself know that you might use in that instance, what kind of phraseology you're using. And you're looking basically for ratios. If you've got 50 deep breaths and one inhale, well, you've got an imbalance in how those words are being used. And your goal isn't to necessarily eliminate them. It's to to create balance, to create variety so that the writing doesn't start to feel repetitive and just over and over the same thing. Because uh, from a reading side, when you start repeating stuff like that, the brain immediately starts to block it out, just like it does with the word said. Um, so you don't want that. You want readers to stay fully engaged. So you really try and keep that variety uh, switching things up. So Another thing that you'll probably see a lot is checked. Like, you know, I checked, he checked, you know, uh, checked over his shoulder, checked the couch, checked this, checked that. And I mean, sometimes it's going to stand in for literal checks, like he wrote a check and there's no way to get around that. But for the most part, there, you're looking for alternatives. Is the, Does the character only check for things or does he search? Does he you know, scour, does he, you know, ruffle, whatever. You're looking for, you're looking to deepen the vocabulary for the same movement, right? So look for the simple words and make sure that when you see the instances of how they're being used, look for stronger verbs because checked is not a strong verb. It's a very generic verb. Now here's one that I am just like, I see this all the time, even in, you know, professionally published books. And I, I just don't understand how people don't know about this. Like, it's, it's sad to me, because not only does it create unnecessary words, it, it also distances your reader from your character. And it's verbs like, I saw, I heard, I looked, she saw, she heard, she looked. So there's a really good chance that many of those instances can be deleted. And there when the characters like, I saw X happen, I looked out the window and saw whatever. And the I saw part is redundant because the only reason the character is able to describe what's happening is the very fact that he's seen it happen. So you can just say X happened that's way stronger and more immediate and you're up inside the character's head at that point seeing through their eyes when the character says i saw then you're just hearing the character tell you what's happening instead of actually seeing it for yourself and it's very small and it's very subtle and it has an enormous impact on the immediacy between feeling like you're in that character's shoes or the character simply telling you what happened to them. So the same thing goes for looked, right? Um, you know, I looked out the window. And now 
you know, I looked out the window and saw X, Y, Z. You could just say, you know, there's so many alternatives. But the the exception to looked is when your character actually does need to um, to explain what's going on, like to to, to to get you from here to there. But there's there's alternatives to the word look. You know, I took in the room. She studied the surroundings, stole a quick glance. And again, you're just trying to bring in variety into the language that's being used. So it's not the same handful of verbs that are used over and over and again for everything. Now, here's one that I've never come up against before, and this would be unique to Steve, <laughs> but maybe other people do it too. And I just found it fascinating. Like, I... Now I'm now I'm concerned. Now no, I'm... <laughs> no, no, no. You, you've already read it. It, it. it it fascinates me in a like, oh my god, that's so interesting sort of way, and it has to do with the word scent. And this is it could be um, regional the way words are used regionally. It could I I I honestly don't know because language is so. Um, it, language can be kind of personal, but it also can be very varied from, from one location to the next, how we actually use specific words in everyday life. I mean, the difference between pop and soda is one. You, you can tell what part of the country somebody's from by whether they call it pop or soda. And so here's the word scent, right? And it's really not overused in this story at all. I think there's maybe 20 uses of it in this entire 100,000 plus word manuscript. So the number of uses is not overkill, but what made it jump out to me was that it's the only word that's ever used to describe what a character's smelling. And what made it fascinating to me is that scent is a very strong word. It implies like wild, musky, outdoor, woody, pungent, gamey, right? So when it's used in the context of, for example, maybe smelling woman's perfume, it creates a juxtaposition in my head that's very jarring, almost a little bit off-putting because unlike nodded or smile, we have a lot of options to choose from in, in word replacements for scent. We've got fragrance, smell, bouquet, aroma, whiff, hint, trace, like I caught a whiff of her perfume, a trace of her perfume filled my head. Like there's variety, right? So the fact that it was this one word that does not have a soft or a floral, a floral sense about it. It is a very pungent, woody scent word, sense in the word scent. Um, it fascinated me, like why this word? But I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to get into that. But anyway, all right, all right. Now, <laughs> in my own defense, I, I just looked up in the dictionary the word "scent." The number one, the, the number one usage is a distinctive smell, especially one that is pleasant. Well, there you go. So I thought I was like, oh my gosh, am I saying that someone smells like a farm animal no, every time no. I say that? <laughs> no, but look, when you are talking about tracking an animal, mm -hmm. right? What word are you going to use to pick up the smell of that animal? Fragrance. No. No. <laughs> no. I, I obviously any, would use scent, no matter what it was. Under no circumstance would you say that the, the hound picked up the deer's fragrance. You would say scent, 
right? Mm -hmm. So that's where that comes from with me in, in the way the word, it's not even what the word means. It's what the word feels, right? How it is, how a word is weighted in like there words. Okay. This might be a form of synesthesia, a very, very mild form of synesthesia, but words have emotions attached to them. They have feelings. They have um, they have more than just the actual definition of what the word means. And so even if a word like scent technically, dictionarily speaking, would be absolutely 100% correct for describing a woman's fragrance, the way that that word feels might be something different. And some people might be more sensitive to the weight of words, the emotion of words than others. Um, I would guess that I'm probably on the extreme end of it, but I pick up on stuff like this. And I don't know if maybe when somebody's reading, they might pick up on it, but not be aware of picking up on it. It just changes the way they feel. So I just found this to be incredibly fascinating. And that's the only reason why I included it in here, not because it was necessarily wrong or anything like that. And, you know, as you're saying all this, I was thinking of a movie title. And the, the title of the movie was... Scent of a Woman! Yes. And I remember Scent when that came out thinking, that's a weird title. I don't really understand what they're going for there. And so now I, I with that as a frame of reference, I get what you're saying. And of course I got what you're saying. It's like, yeah, there are lots of other words for scent, including all these other things, which uh, apparently are just not a part of my vocabulary. I, I, I'm sure they are a part of your vocabulary. They just weren't the first word that came to mind when you were writing. And that's often, often what these writing ticks are, is they're not the first word. Like the, what we put on the page is the first word that comes to mind. And so we're trying to like change it up. And the changing up part has is a deliberate process. It's not an instinctive process. So in that vein, and I don't know how much time we have here, but I've got a couple more words that are first to mind and way overused by everyone. And the first one is walked. So walked is the least effective form of describing movement. According to the dictionary, it suffices. <laughs> it absolutely does. <laughs> serve the purpose for which it is used. But it is very generic. And there are so many more options. You know, we've got pace, tread, saunter, strode, stroll, pushed toward, ambled, slunk, shuffled, continued, headed towards, hiked, followed, made my way. And those are just a few that came to mind to me as I was um, trying to come up with alternatives. But I know there are actual lists out there of like 90 different ways to replace walk or whatever. So... For me personally, I really try and avoid the word walked in when I, uh, simply because it's not a strong verb. It's not, it, there's no real strong emotion can, attached to it. There's no strong image attached to it. it, it it's just there. And words can serve more than one purpose. They, they, they can, they're they emotion generators, right? And so you're going to want to keep that emotion high by creating very vivid imagery using very precise language. So 
if it was me, you know, I do a search for walk and I'm going to try and replace like 75% of them. I mean, depending on how many show up, if I've got, you know, more than 30 in my manuscript, it's just too many because I know they can be replaced. And so I'm going to be looking for alternatives. And so you're looking again for variety in word choice and word usage and sentence structure. That's your goal here. It's not just to not have this word in your, in your manuscript. Um, and then, so another one is eyes. And this is a personal take of mine, so I'm sensitive to it. And many of the, the use of the word eyes can be deleted outright, others can be replaced. For example, her eyes scanned the room, it can be shortened to she scanned the room. Her eyes searched out my face, I can go down to she searched my face, right? So sometimes you don't even need it. And the others, a lot of the other times, the eyes can be written so that, you know, gaze or attention or focus or whatever works in place. I find that the use of eyes, um, I really try and save it for moments where you're pushing to heighten the emotional impact because eye contact can be a very, very powerful thing. And if you, uh, limit how often it's used throughout the manuscript, then when you do use it, it gives you space, elbow room, I guess, to really play off it and make it the emotionally, potentially emotionally impactful moment that it could be. You know, when two people's eyes meet, for example, that could be a thing if the other instances have mostly been eliminated or replaced. Um, another one that uh, I thought was interesting that showed up was eyes narrowed. And like, you know, she narrowed her eyes at me or her eyes narrowed or whatever. And that one was fascinating to me because that's not phrasing that I tend to use in my own work. And so it forced me to try and think, well, what would I do instead of that? And it's really difficult because it's a really specific expression without very many options for calling it what it is. The only one I can come up with is squinted. But squinted doesn't, you know, she squinted at me, just doesn't have the same ring as, you know, she narrowed her eyes at me, right? So, but the thing is, is it's such specific phrasing that if you start to use it more than a few times, it can feel like a crutch, even though it's not, it's just there aren't a lot of alternatives. So I started to think of, you know, what, what could you possibly use? And I was like, mm, she studied me suspiciously, her expression tightened. There's just really not a lot out there. So, you know, I honestly don't even know if that's kind of the phrasing that you use for things, the expressions that you use. I, I can't help you. I'm sorry. I just don't know. <laughs> um, one that was kind of specific also to Steve's writing was... Uh, the word spoke. And it was something that I've really not seen a lot. And it could be because, well, I'm not very well read. And it could be that uh, this is a very normal way of authors writing. And I just don't know, know it. But it's where there would be something like this and this happened. And then she spoke. This, this, I spoke or he spoke, and the spoke precedes dialogue in the same way you would otherwise say, you know, she 
you know, bent down, tied her shoelace, then stood and said, right? And in this case, it's being, you know, she bent down, tied her shoelaces, stood, and she spoke, period. Then comes the dialogue, right? And it they jumped out at me because unlike said, the word spoke, I spoke, is not invisible to the brain. And also because I, I just never seen it before. Like I, I, so it was just sort of jarring to me, but I don't know if that's just from me being so, so poorly read, but my advice was just to change as many spokes to said, because the said becomes invisible to the brain. Um, another one, and this is the last one promise, um, is the word leaned to describe body movement. And uh, I so overuse this one myself. I'm very well, I'm not as aware of it as I should be. I have to clean it up in the aftermath. But it's like, she leaned forward, leaned back, leaned in. And it's kind of like the word breath. Like, it's not necessarily the number of times the word is used, so much is whether or not there's variety in the body movement. So we use these words like lean back, lean forward to break up the monotony of stretches of dialogue and to bring our characters to life with movement beats. And movement beats are very, very necessary. So it's not like you can just delete them because they're there to serve a purpose and they are serving their purpose. What we're looking for is other ways, other forms of body movement, other expressions that could replace some of them so that leaned isn't the only word. And I'm not looking for literal replacements of leaned. I'm looking for a variety in actual body movement so that characters are doing more than just leaning forward, leaning back, leaning into and whatnot. And, but the replacements are going to be very dependent on the characters and on their body positions and stuff. So it's not like you can just say, oh, here's a list of possible alternatives. So I just thought those were interesting. And that's all I got. All right. Well, I'm going to lean forward to get closer to the microphone and let you know that uh, this is the end of this episode, and we will be back in your ear next Tuesday. See you guys next week.